Hello, my rebels. Uh, a funny thing happened in the Supreme Court of uh, the Netherlands. The judges ordered the politicians to cut carbon emissions by 25%. They just ordered them. This has been appealed for years. The, the judges said, look, you signed the treaty. Bloody well do it. It is crazy. I'll take you through uh, some of the legal challenges, but I'll also be a very constructive lad. And I'll give my suggestions for how the Dutch government can comply, because we don't want them to break the law, do we? So that's uh, coming up. Uh, before I get out of the way, let me invite you to become a premium subscriber of Rebel News. Just go to premium.rebelnews.com and you get the um, video version of this podcast. Plus, Sheila Gunn-Reed has a video show and David Menzies. And the eight bucks a month, not a ton of money, but if enough people do it, it helps us keep the lights on here. So please go to premium.rebelnews.com. All right. Here's my show about the fascinating news from the Netherlands. Tonight, a high court in the Netherlands orders politicians to cut carbon emissions. Are they serious? It's December 20th and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Here's news out of the Netherlands. Activists cheer victory in landmark Dutch climate case. Let me read a little bit from the story. In a ruling hailed as an immense victory for climate justice, the Netherlands' top court ruled Friday in favor of activists who have for years been seeking legal orders to force the Dutch government into cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I'm going to read a lot more, but let's just stop for one second. So the Dutch government is very politically correct, very liberal, very fashionable. Of course they are. They're sort of like Trudeau and Obama, but like Trudeau and Obama, they're more talk than walk. I mean, nobody is actually serious about cutting back on their industrial lifestyle. Certainly not Trudeau or Obama. I mean, did you know that Justin Trudeau has already left for his extended Christmas vacation? Look at his official itinerary today. Of course he has. He's out, do you see it there? He's off to Costa Rica. I mean, General Motors has just shut down its factory in Oshawa. We've still got two Canadian hostages in China, and I see that we might have a new Canadian hostage in China, Mazel tov. Did you see this story just last week? China detains Canadian CEO of US-listed company FinSera for suspected financial crime. So is that three Canadian hostages taken by China? Well, look, Trudeau has to get back to building sandcastles. At least I think that's a sandcastle. I saw someone say that looks more like a mosque with minarets, but I think that's crazy talk. It's just a sandcastle. I mean, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Anywho, um, Trudeau's back on the beach. Uh, but you see this gem that he said right before he hopped on his private jet to Costa Rica? Because that's what you do if you believe there's a climate emergency. You take a private jet halfway around the world to build sandcastles to get away from the cold. How dare you? I know, Greta's mad again. But here's what Trudeau said before he jetted. Trudeau says he asked U.S. to stall China trade deal until Canadians released. Let me read from this story. 
We've said that the United States should not sign a final and complete agreement with China that does not settle the question of Meng Wanzhou and the two Canadians, Trudeau said in translated remarks. Okay, yeah, um, hey, Donald Trump, I know I mocked you on TV a couple of weeks ago uh, with my buddies Macron and Boris Johnson, and I know you and your administration have been working on a China trade deal for two years, and I know it's the biggest trade battle and trade deal potentially in world history, but um, I gotta say this fast, because I've gotta go get on that plane to build some sandcastles in Costa Rica. <laughs> um, but can you like um, put your entire American national interest aside, because I can't get it done? Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump kept busy, busy Justin Trudeau waiting for 40 minutes. Doesn't he know how busy Trudeau is? I mean, he's got to get down to Costa Rica to build some sandcastles. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think Donald Trump would put his entire China plans on hold to do a favor for Justin Trudeau? I don't know. You can always dream. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. I'm just making a point about how unserious Trudeau is. About everything, of course, and certainly about global warming. If you're taking private jets, you just might be a climate hypocrite. Uh, Holland is like that. Their carbon dioxide emissions are pretty stable, actually. Uh, it's a tiny country, really. There's not a lot of jetting around. They're, they're pretty much unchanged. You see that? In a decade, they're down a little bit. Very slight decrease. I'm going to say about, I don't know, 50 megatons. But seriously, who cares? Um, here is a chart from the University of East Anglia, published in The Guardian, the most pro-global warming uh, uh, newspaper in the world. 37 billion tons of GHG emissions last year. Look at that graph, how steep it's climbing. Now again, I don't think that's a problem. Carbon dioxide is a harmless, colorless, odorless gas that is naturally occurring. We breathe it out, so do all mammals, and plants breathe it in as part of photosynthesis. Without CO2, all life on Earth would die. But my quick point here with this graph, look at this graph. The Netherlands has spent billions of dollars trying to get its annual carbon emissions down by 50 megatons, but the world emissions are 37,000 megatons. That's, that's 37 billion megatons. Uh, 37 billion tons, sorry. So pretty much every week, China adds another 50 megatons. All of Holland, they raise taxes, they give subsidies, they build wind turbines. For a decade, they knock themselves out, and China replaces all that in a week. China's the red, the red part of the graph here. The gray part there is other developing countries. Um, as you can see, the dark blue at the bottom, America is sort of stable. It's China and India and Brazil, really. So what's my point? My point is that this, this high court of the Netherlands thinks it's, it's what? Uh, dictators? Kings, maybe? Who can just order things to be done. Is that how it works? I don't think that's even a political question. It's a, it's a science question. It's a technology question. Do you think that they can, just like King Canute, just order the tides to stop? I order the weather to change. Don't you know who I am? Uh, and let me read some more from the news story. Activists in a packed chamber of the Supreme Court in The Hague erupted into applause and cheers as presiding judge Keith Streifkirk rejected the government's appeal against earlier rulings, ordering the government to cut emissions by at least 25% by the end of 2020. 
from Benchmark 1911. Get cracking, boys. The Supreme Court upheld lower courts' rulings that protection from the potentially devastating effects of climate change was a human right and that the government has a duty to protect its citizens. Mm, yeah. The old Keith Streifkirk. Him again, eh? Keith Streifkirk, the name you know. A lifetime bureaucrat, of course, uh, just the perfect self-righteous prat who thinks he can simply order the weather to change or something. Keith Streifkirk. I love saying that. He's never run for public office that I know of. He's never run a public company or any company that I know of. He's never actually done anything. That was his biography there. But he's telling the virtue signalers to do something. Now, in a way, that's wonderful. If the courts ordered Justin Trudeau to cut carbon dioxide emissions by 25%, and I mean actually ordered him to do so, like sent police or something, and said, oh, I don't know, we're going to put you in jail if you don't. Now, obviously, that would be outrageous. It would be a kind of coup. It would be bizarre and undemocratic, but hey, that's sort of what the United Nations is, what the European Union is. That's what all these globalists believe in. That's what they say they want. So what would happen if it actually happened? Would they force Trudeau to give up his flight to Costa Rica and vacation in Quebec instead? You know Trudeau has three homes on the taxpayer dime right now, right? He lives in Rideau Hall. He still has 24 Sussex Drive, but that's just for his chef, swear to God. And he has the home in Harrington Lake, Quebec, where his mom sometimes stays. So maybe the court might order him to only have one house. And maybe to cook his own food. He's got two nannies. And maybe stop eating beef, right? I mean, the rest of us have to be vegetarian, according to the UN. Why not start with Trudeau? If a court was really saying you've got to cut back 25%, imagine if a court would order all cabinet ministers in Trudeau's government to give up their chauffeured limousines. Oh, the squawking. Now, none of that would come even close to making a dent in our carbon emissions, but if a high court orders a government to do something, wouldn't that be something to do to start with them? Now, they can't actually change the weather. I think there would be riots if actual citizens were imposed upon in this way. I mean, it's bloody freezing in most of, most of North America right now. You know, I was in Houston um, briefly this week. It's right on the Gulf of Mexico. It's so far south. Um, and it was so cold there that they had to bring out the de-icing machine for the plane. I don't know if they ever had to do that before in Houston. I was surprised they even had a de-icing machine in Houston. That's how cold it got in Texas. Imagine ordering Canadians to turn off their heat this winter. And also, we're a big country. Stop driving and flying. Just put on a sweater. Use your bike. I mean, what else exactly would you mean by ordering emissions reductions? Just ordering it. How, how else are you going to do it? Kill every animal in agriculture? I know that sounds insane, but agriculture is a major source of carbon dioxide emissions and methane emissions, all the breathing of the animals, plus they're farting and burping, especially cows. Do you think Quebec's dairy farmers would go along with that? You know, a large dairy cow emits as much GSGs as a car. I know these sound like insane ideas, which is why no politician, not even Trudeau or Obama or the liberals who run Holland would do this. It's why Elizabeth May jets around. It's why David Suzuki has five houses, including one in Australia, because none of them actually believe this stuff, that the world's going to end in two years, at least... They don't believe it enough to live it. Other than the Unabomber who went out into the woods, no one actually goes off the grid. But remember this. If you actually say it louder, we've learned in the House of Commons, if you repeat it, if you say it louder, if that is your talking point, people will totally believe it. Remember that clip? 
That was a drunk Catherine McKenna at a bar in Newfoundland. Um, just that little clip there, that little scene there. High energy, high carbon bar she's in, having her favorite scotch flown in from halfway around the world, her camera crew that filmed that drunk tweet, her staff back in Parliament that tweeted that, I remember she jetted to Newfoundland and back. That entire little vignette of drunk Catherine McKenna probably emitted a year's worth of carbon dioxide for a normal person. She doesn't really mean anything she says. And in a way, this Dutch court, this Kees Streefkirk, he's just calling their bluff. I mean, if all these politicians actually sign these insane treaties and make these crazy promises and pass laws, I guess maybe Keith Streifkirk isn't the insane one here. Maybe he's the only one sane, saying, okay then, big shot, live up to your promises. Here's what the green extremists in the Netherlands said about it. I am extremely happy that the highest court in the Netherlands has confirmed that climate change is a real severe problem and that government should do what they themselves have declared for more than 10 years is necessary, namely between 25% and 40% reduction of CO2. Urgenda director Marian Minesma told the Associated Press outside the court. Yeah, I mean, look, this is all just Alice in Wonderland stuff. It's, it's all a con. It's a joke. It's junk science. It's junk economics. But maybe don't say it if you don't mean it. Maybe don't pass a law and sign a treaty if you don't mean it. Here's more. Faiza Ulassen of Greenpeace in the Netherlands called the ruling, quote, an immense victory for climate justice. It is now more than four years since a court in The Hague first ordered the emissions cut in a case brought by Urgenda that spawned similar legal challenges around, in courts around the world. The Dutch government appealed that verdict, saying that courts shouldn't be able to order the government to take action. The government lost the appeal in October 2018, but appealed again, this time to the Supreme Court. Now, this is the worst. Extremist NGOs like Greenpeace and Urgenda. That sounds like sort of a, you know, a urinary tract infection. Oh my God, I got Urgenda, I gotta got take some penicillin. Uh, extremist NGOs and pressure groups like Urgenda and other lobbyists who may well be funded by foreign interests, as they are in Canada. So you got them, you got a case of Urgenda that's really acting up. Uh, you got unelected judges, you got lots of junk science. But look, don't say it if you don't mean it. The government appealed. I'm reading more from the case here, the story. The government appealed, arguing that it effectively meant a court was formulating government policy. But appeals judges last year rejected that argument, saying that they must uphold international treaties, such as the European Human Rights Convention, to which the Netherlands is a party. Look, I like the Dutch a lot. Lots of great Dutch Canadians. I like saying chocolatehachel and hachelslach. Canada and Holland have wonderful historic ties. We helped liberate them in the Second World War. Did you know that the Dutch royal family fled the Nazis to Canada? And this woman here, Beautiful Princess Marguerite. She was born in Canada. You know, they declared the hospital room where she was born to be Dutch soil for symbolic purposes. I mean, who doesn't love the Dutch? I mean, think of the movie Goldmember. But look, they made this pickle. The Dutch made this pickle. So let me put aside my mockery and my irritation and let me give my best genuine good faith advice to our friends over there who keep losing in court. Look, I love the Dutch. Let's try and help them. If they don't want to quit the Paris Global Warming Treaty, like Donald Trump did, then it sounds like they're going to have to abide by it.
They should quit it. My advice, heart to heart, love the Dutch. Like Stephen Harper quit the Kyoto Protocol, like Donald Trump quit the Paris Protocol, quit it. But if you really want to stay in it, well, you got to follow this court order. So here's how, just me to you. Step one, turn off all fossil fuels to the courthouse where Keith Streifkirk and the other judges work. What I mean by that is if, if the courthouse is heated by natural gas, if there's, say, a cafeteria in the courthouse and it uses natural gas in the stove, maybe the air conditioners use natural gas. I don't know. Cut it off. I mean, look, climate action, right? If the courthouse's electricity comes in whole or in part from natural gas or coal-fired power plants, look, you've got to cut that off, too. Uh, you're just doing what the, the court said. This report by Forbes magazine says there are at least five coal-fired power plants in Holland, including one that was just opened a couple years ago. Let me read. Until recently, the Netherlands was still opening new coal plants, which have a minimum lifespan of 40 years. Germany energy company Uniper said uh, they built the MPP3 coal-fired electricity plant in Rotterdam's Maasvlakte port area. My Vlasbakta area is inflamed as well. So they opened in 2016 at a cost of about 1.6 billion euros at the invitation of the Dutch government. At the time, the government wanted to diversify its energy mix because its reliance on gas meant the Dutch were paying much higher prices for electricity than their neighbors. Well, sorry, dudes. Not only can you not use cheap coal, but you can't even use more expensive natural gas that you were complaining about there. Not if you want to be holy, like Keith Streifkirk says. You got to cut off the power to the courthouse, my dudes. And shut down the parking lot. Look, I've been to courthouses before. Have you, do you, have you ever seen a judge bicycle to work? Uh, they're more the kind of people who drive Lincolns and Mercedes or be driven. Nice, big, smooth, comfy cars. And they always have underground, private, heated parking. Well, obviously, that's got to go. Look. The judge has said, so you got to shut down the parking lots. I don't know, turn them into vegan, organic gardens fertilized by, you know, organic fertilizer. I think we need a zero plastics policy too. And I'm not just talking about, you know, reusable bottles. I mean, zero. That pretty much rules out computers, cell phones, things like that. Most electronics is a lot of metal and plastic, both of which are problematic. Hey, no problem. Courts existed for centuries <laughs> before plastic was invented. Just use paper and pens, or I guess not pens, pen, maybe typewriters if they're recycled. So yeah, I think this court ruling, while insane, is the least insane thing about global warming. It actually says to politicians, your words mean something when you say them, when you sign a treaty about them. This ruling is obviously impossible. It's arrogant. It's undemocratic. It's impractical. It's like ordering the tides to stop. But hey... They didn't write the rules, did they? They're just enforcing them. The UN wrote the rules. I say comply. Just start with compliance by shutting off the heat to the courthouse. And maybe to Keith Streifkirk's house. I mean, look, a court order is a court order, right? Stay with us for more.
Gun Reed here on special assignment this week in Iraqi Kurdistan. I'm here documenting your efforts to save the Christian survivors of an ISIS genocide here in the place that has been the cradle of Christianity for 2,000 years. I'm here to show you how our Save the Christians fundraising is being spent by our partners at the Nazarene Fund and their in-country contractors. Now, in the West, many people see the United Nations as saviors, as a force for good. Here, they are seen as inept and corrupt and infected with bigotry against the Christians who languish in their refugee camps. The camps are not a safe place for Christians, and sometimes they are in the camps with their ISIS persecutors who masquerade as refugees. Because of this, the Nazarene Fund sometimes needs to deliver food and aid to the Christians in the UN IDP camps, even though the UN is supposed to take care of them, even though the West sends money to the UN to take care of them. Christians are often neglected in the camps because they're Christian. They are often the last to eat, the last to get medicine, the last to get clothes, the last to get diapers for their babies, and the last to get out of the camps. It falls on NGOs and charities like the Nazarene Fund, supported by you, to help the Christians when the UN just doesn't seem to care. That's our friend Sheila Gunn-Reed in Iraq, the country, the war zone. We sent her there on the triple top secret download because we did not want people to know she was there for security reasons. Although ISIS has largely been extirpated from the country, it's still very dangerous. And there are still terrorists lurking about and other militias, including those funded and directed by Iran. Sheila was there with a protective team. And as you can see, she was there to check up on how Christians are doing in a land from which they have been ethnically cleansed or more accurately, genocided. And Sheila, safely back in Alberta now, joins us via Skype. Sheila, how you doing, my friend? I'm great. Um, that trip to Iraq was an opportunity that I never thought that I would ever be able to have. Um, so I, I'm grateful for that, um, but still deeply sad for what I saw. I saw a lot of hope, but I saw a lot of... Um, just sadness and grief still there. Yeah, I, I went there a couple of days, a couple of years ago, excuse me, and that was when the final battle in Mosul, the big city with yeah. about a million people, that was not their technical capital, but that was their main city. And people were scared, even our armed guards were scared because there's, even if ISIS is officially dispatched, it has sympathizers and supporters everywhere. Yeah. You heard that ISIS, even though it's technically defeated on the ground, still effectively, or ISIS or other Muslim extremists, still run the show in the UN refugee and displacement camps. Am I right? Yeah, and that's something that um, uh, has been testified to um, before uh, Canadian immigration hearings, um, back when we were talking about how many uh, Yazidis that we would take as refugees. Samaritan's Purse testified back then years ago. So it's something the Canadian government is well aware of, that there are ISIS sympathizers either working in the refugee camps or ISIS is hiding in plain sight in the refugee camps so that they can come to Western countries as refugees, thus escaping um, justice um, back in Iraq um, 
the justice they deserve. So, you know, it's it's not a safe place for Christians to be in the refugee camps. And that was one of the, the things that was one of the more prominent themes when I was there was that the Nazarene Fund, our partners in our Save the Christians um, project, they work very hard to get the Christians out of the camps because mm-hmm. the the Christians who are in the camps, they will face discrimination. They tend to languish in the camps because the aid workers who work for the UN tend to shuffle their paperwork to the bottom. Um, so they can't really get out. And the UN is ineffective on a good day at getting um, food aid, clothing, and shelter to anybody in the camps, but in particular, the Christians. Mm -hmm. So I I was really astounded to know that the Nazarene Fund goes into the UN camp. So Canada gives the UN a bunch of money to help these internally displaced people in the UN camps. But somewhere along the line, the UN drops the ball. And so it it is left to charities like the Nazarene Fund to go into the refugee camps to deliver food aid to the Christians there. So it's like the Christians need to be rescued yes. from the UN rescuers because the UN yes. rescuers don't want to rescue the Christians. Well, um, we have raised money in the past for Christians in Syria and Iraq, and we have worked quietly with uh, the Nazarene Fund, and we checked them out because, as viewers will recall from our last adventure to Iraq, it is a low-trust society, Mm -hmm. and you've got to be extremely careful, and I found it very disheartening. I mean, look, there's no infrastructure. It really is a war zone. You have to be careful, and I believe that uh, the Nazarene Fund, I flew down to Texas, I met uh, their, their team, I, I inspected their IRS form, it's called Form 990, that they file with the Internal Revenue Service. Um, I know that Glenn Beck is involved with them, and I, I think I did my due diligence paper-wise and in North America, and one of the reasons we sent you, and thank you for going, to Iraq was to do the due diligence on the ground. Would you confirm that you believe that the money raised for SaveTheChristians.com is well spent by sending it to the Nazarene Fund? I I will confirm that. And one thing I did notice when I was there was just um, how much on a shoestring budget they operate. They use a lot of um, uh, volunteer aid workers. And they're doing the work that the United Nations is paid for. So they are doing a lot of the refugee screening. They're doing a lot of the applying for visas and, and getting in contact with the consulates of the Czech Republic and Australia um, to find homes for the the Christians and the Yazidis, because that's another thing. Um, while the Nazarene Fund is Christian-focused, the Yazidis know that they can trust the Nazarene Fund. So they go to the Nazarene Fund for help. And of course, the Nazarene Fund doesn't turn them away because the Yazidis have also faced much of the same discrimination, the same persecution, the same sex slavery and extermination from their indigenous lands. So the Nazarene Fund on the ground is really overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, They say that they are capable because they work largely on volunteers. They say they are capable of helping more Christians get out of the region or rebuild their homes back in Batnaya. That's the Christian town that was behind enemy lines that was featured in our Save the Christians documentary. They can help them because they do have the manpower. They just don't have the money to do it. They don't have the money to rent the hotel 
uh, conference centers to process them to once they get them out of the UN camps, they've got to put the Christians up in housing, local housing. So, you know, if they, they don't have the funds flowing in, they they could help so many more, but they just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, um, listen, I'm glad you went. Uh, I'm glad you, you say it was a positive experience. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was not a comfortable experience physically. It was a uh, risk experience, although I think we were in good hands and they, I mean, mm-hmm. they took care of you from, they even met you at the airport and they, they arranged everything, which is good because we don't know our way around there. But I'm glad you went and uh, I'm glad that you are confirming for us the good work is being done. Now, a few hours ago, we set up the website savethechristians.com and it points to a special Christmas fund that we're trying to raise $10,000 just for Christmas to help get some refugees out of there to Australia or the Czech Republic countries that still take them. Now, last I checked, in a few hours, uh, savethechristians.com had already raised $8,800 and we didn't even really announce it yet. So I'm sure we're going to reach our $10,000 goal. All the proceeds from that will go to the Nazarene Fund project. And we're going to stretch it to $15,000. If we raise that, let's stretch it to $20,000. I like those guys. I've I've met them in America. You've met them in Iraq. And I'd like to encourage our viewers, if you want to do something Christmassy, obviously help in your local community, whether it's a food bank or something like that. But uh, I feel like this is a good project because... As Sheila pointed out, the UN doesn't help these people. And I'm not in a position to criticize the church. I'm not Christian. I don't go to a church. I don't follow the Pope. But part of me feels like the official Christian establishment, with some notable exceptions, doesn't properly prioritize these Christians who have been terrorized and genocided. And uh, it frustrates me that this isn't a higher uh, priority for certain mainstream Christian groups. Instead of just complaining about it, we're going to help out in our own small way. Last word to you, Sheila. Uh, I will second your motion as a practicing Catholic that I don't think the Western Church is doing enough to help the Christians on the ground in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, the the church there is very strong. They're very bold. And, you know, I, I met with Father Amon, who is the church or who is the uh, priest from Batnaya. And he refuses to be purged from the land. And since he came back um, when Butnaya was liberated, 70 families have gone back. Um, it, it, he's, his parish is going to be full for Christmas. But as a, a Catholic, I don't recall the last time that I heard a prayer of the faithful in my church dedicated to the persecuted Christians in northern Iraq or for that matter around the world. So I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to help the Christians there um, to fill in the gaps um, where the UN is falling flat. And I, I hope everybody at home, if you can, pitch in to give these people, um, you know, it's really the gift of freedom for them and the gift of being able to raise their children in their faith without persecution. Yeah. You know, I tell you, if every time a church leader replaced some global warming speech mm. with a help persecuted Christian speech, I think something could really be done. Um, but Sheila, I'm so proud of you for going over there at some personal risk, I must say. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember we talked about it and, and we said, well, just talk to your family and your husband and make sure everything's cool because it was outside of our power. We sort of had to trust the local 
bodyguards yeah. and whatnot, but there's still a risk, so I'm, I'm grateful that you did it. And I'm glad you told the story. I want to tell people we got about 10 videos from Sheila's work. They're going to be rolled out over the next few days. You can see them at savethechristians.com and you can chip in and make a donation. 100% of the proceeds from savethechristians.com will go directly to the NAS Reason Fund. We also have a link there if you want to help co cover Sheila's costs. We're not taking Sheila's costs from that same pool of money. So we have another button. If you want to chip in, Sheila had to fly Edmonton, Toronto, Vienna, Erbil, and back, if I've got, or maybe Frankfurt was in there. It's a very, very long journey. It was long. Yeah, we paid for that ourselves, obviously, where we're not going to take that from the aid. So if someone wants to help us with that part of the trip, you can see that button on that website too. Thanks, Sheila, and have a Merry Christmas. And I feel like you did a little bit of good, maybe even a lot, like you held up a candle in the darkness for people who need the help. So uh, congratulations to you, Sheila. Well, thank you, Ezra. Um, I'm just very grateful to the families who were willing to tell their stories to me at, you know, at some great personal cost. So um, without their bravery, the story cannot be told. Right on. That website again is savethechristians.com. You'll see links for all the things we've talked about. And over the course of the next few days, we will upload all 10 videos that Sheila filmed on her own in Iraq, which is a feat in itself. All right, stay with us. More ahead on the Rebel. Welcome back on my interview with Alex Jones yesterday. Jane writes, really enjoyed your interview with Alex Jones. The more I hear from him, the more I admire him for his work in getting the truth out the same way you do. I wish you would connect with him more often. I feel he's basically a good and honest man and a patriot that is concerned about where this world is heading. Well, I don't know, maybe he was on his absolute best behavior when I was down there, but he seemed pretty normal to me. Uh, he seemed like he's revved up about the same sort of issues that we are. I have no doubt that he colors outside the lines a bit more than we do. That's his style. He's more of an entertainer. He's rambunctious. But even if he's wrong, and I, I think we all have the right to be wrong, why is he utterly banned and unpersoned? Uh, he's, he's not a criminal. He's not a murderer. Uh, but he's treated worse than any. Robin writes, I used to be a subscriber, and I'm going to resubscribe. I'm just listening to you on Alex Jones, and you are incredible. Thank you. Well, Robin, that's nice of you to say. Um, listen, we've had our ups and downs too. Uh, I think we generally do a good job here at Rebel, obviously, I think so. But I think sometimes we pay too much attention to our hysterical critics. Um, and sometimes that doesn't even let us get to know a person. I don't know if I would even, if I had never heard of Tommy Robinson, for example, till today, I don't know if I would be able to get to know who he really is because there's such a wall, a fog of lies around him, you can't get through it to get to the truth. I don't even know how one would go about getting to know the real Alex Jones other than going to meet him because you, you can't, there's just so much hysteria about him and he can't speak back. On Alex Jones being deplatformed, Jack writes, why can't a right-wing person or company construct a YouTube-type system for all deplatformed people? If Zuckerberg was able to construct Facebook, it seems possible for anyone to construct an online system for the right. Well, Jack, I don't think the problem is technical. It's where's everybody else? And I give this example in my, uh, my noontime show today. Every Friday, I do a live chat at 12 noon Eastern. And for example, there's another uh, medium called uh, Gab. It's like a free speech version of Twitter. I met the president of it a couple years back, and he said, we have 300,000 users. 
all right, well, Twitter has 300 million. And all the journalists and politicians and opinion leaders and pollsters and news companies are on Twitter. So you can be on Gab by yourself with 300,000 people. I mean, it's not by yourself, but that's literally one-tenth of 1% 1 the size of Twitter. And Twitter is one-tenth the size of Facebook. So someone could invent a new Facebook, but if you're the only one on it, what's the use? The whole value of Facebook is you connect to other people, talk to other people, make groups with other people. It's, it's not even that Facebook is the best system. It's that it's the dominant one. It would be like saying, I don't like the English language. There's too many weird rules. Let's invent a new language like Esperanto. Even if Esperanto is engineered to be a better language, no one's going to use it. That's the problem. Google, YouTube are so far ahead. It's like they literally own the English language. And if you don't like it, well, what are you going to do? That's the problem. That's the problem. Well, that's our show for today. We will have shows, special programs throughout the holiday season. We've got special long-form interviews. We have special best of the rebel we have the best of the campaigns, best of our fun foreign trips. I think you're going to enjoy Rebel shows throughout the Christmas season. We'll also have, I think we'll have the odd live stream on YouTube, but we're going to gear down a little bit over the Christmas season, but boy, we're coming back strong in 2020. I can hardly wait for all the things we're going to do. I want to thank you for your support this year. So tune in on Monday for a brand new show, and I'll see you live sooner than you think. Until next time. On behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home and around the world, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.